Welcome to the symposium. Today we're joined by Harry and we're going to finish our discussion on Kant's ethics. Part one was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Quite difficult. Yes. And uh, as you mentioned, quite dry. But I feel like I've got a better understanding of why Kant was writing about what he was writing in the first place. So we'll see if we can continue that elaboration on. Yeah, this is essentially the major problem with several figures like Kant and others, because the major question is, why should I read a book that is 700 pages? Or why should I read multiple books that span thousands of pages with people using idiosyncratic language? Why are they doing what they're doing? All these are questions that, unless answered, we're going to have trouble understanding any philosopher. So I think that it is important to approach each topic from the right angle and show the kinds of problems that each thinker was addressing. And that is why I think that although the first part you could say was a bit dry, it was necessary and we have a good idea now of why Kant was thinking that it was important to write books like these. So we said that he was active during the Enlightenment. Some people have said that he was the pinnacle of the Enlightenment. Others think that he represents the, in, the initial break from the Enlightenment. I side more with the former side, but both sides are respectable. He thought that the there was a challenge with integrating simultaneously, with integrating morality in a picture of the universe that was broadly Newtonian. He thought that the mechanistic universe leaves no room for morality and he wanted to make room for morality. And as we said before, he takes himself to be dealing with a rational part of ethics. He wants to find the supreme principle of morality and give a rational grounding of ethics in order to solve several issues, such as the problem that Hume mentioned and Hume immortalized in his discussion of the is and ought gap. And also he thought that unless we have a way of systematizing our knowledge, whether in, whether in thinking, in understanding, in descriptive stuff, natural stuff, or moral stuff, our understanding is going to be corrupted. And especially in the moral case, our morals will be corrupted. So here we're going to talk about essentially what you may have been waiting for when you listened to us discussing Kant. We're going to talk about the goodwill, the moral duty or obligation, the distinction between acting in accordance with duty and acting for the sake of duty. This is a major thing topic in Kant, Mac the maxim of an action, the imperatives, the hypothetical and the categorical imperatives, here is where we are going to focus mostly. Autonomy and heteronomy, the distinction between happiness and deserving happiness, the kingdom of ends, the holy will, the free will, two standpoints, the one that views things from the standpoint of nature, or views things as subject to the laws of nature, and the other that views some entities, such as rational beings, 
as subject to the laws of freedom, that are moral laws that can be violated unlike natural laws. And then we have the antinomy of freedom and necessitation. This is one way of talking about the problem of free will that we talked about in Symposium 45. And then we're also going to talk about the notion of dignity, because Kant thinks that there's a special kind of dignity in human beings, and he thinks it has to do with our ability to be rational. And many people are pissed off with him about it due to its implications for animals, but also something which I can understand that there are people who think that the, thinking that reason is only what gives us dignity robs dignity out of people whose rational faculties are impaired. And he has been criticized endlessly for things like that. Is that more of a modern criticism? I think so, but I don't think that... It sounds like something that would pop up in terms of ableism. Well, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know, but I've heard people being pissed off about him, about that. So, I think we should start with the notion of the will, because for him, the notion of the will is incredibly central. So, he talks about the will, about the good will, the holy will, the freedom of the will, autonomous will and heteronymous will. So all these are really central notions to his philosophy. And they are, you could say, to an extent interconnected. So let's talk about the will as such. He says, it is a power of determining oneself to action in accordance with the idea of certain laws. Also a kind of causality belonging to living beings so far as they are rational is how he gives two definitions that are not obviously compatible, but these are two definitions that he uses. He's talking there about the goodwill, which is the will to do the right thing because it is one's duty to do it, as opposed to just doing it out of fear of not getting away with not doing it or out of other motives. He's talking about the holy will, which is the will of a perfect being. And he says that, for instance, a perfect being is a being to whom obligations do not apply because obligations are normative obligations and they can be violated. It makes no sense to talk about perfect beings as being subject to, let's say, standards of irrationality or immorality. They're perfect, so there's no possibility that they can violate such obligations. Then we have the freedom of the will, that he says something like, freedom is the property of the will when it operates independently of determination by alien causes. And also he says something like, a free will and a will under moral laws are one and the same. Then we have the autonomous will, which is the will that is driven solely by the motive of duty and the will that becomes a law unto itself and the heteronymous will, the will that is driven by motives other than the motive of duty. Do you see now what I was telling to you before that he uses very idiosyncratic language mm. and it's difficult to see what he means by it unless we really contextualize it. Yeah, because freedom of the will, saying freedom is the property of the will when it operates independently 
of determination by alien causes. That's a rather that's put in some rather difficult language, but does that mean basically um, your decision uh, decisions that you make without influence from others? Okay, so this is an excellent question. I think that what he says here is that the will is not should be understood if it is free it should be understood as not being causally necessitated by things so for instance he would say and this is the famous problem of free will that for some reason he mentions he, he describes as the antinomy of reason of freedom and determination necessity. and necessitation yeah so he says that if we look at things from the perspective of nature we're not going to see any room there for free will. Why? Because viewing things from the perspective of nature requires us to view things as standing under in, in immutable laws of nature that involve causal necessitation. <clears throat> so he says that in order to, viewing things from the perspective of nature, from the standpoint of nature, is to view things as necessitated. So free will has no room into that domain is it, because is free will is free from necessitation. And by, by, by definition, there can be nothing that is free from necessitation in a world that is governed by necessitation. All right, so is this why it was that you were saying that he was, he seemed skeptical on whether free will could be real but you should behave as if you have free will because under that incredibly strict definition that he's provided then yes free will is completely impossible because every decision that you make in your entire life is by virtue of it taking place in the in the physical world will have some kind of necessary contingent to it that puts it in a context of time and place the decisions of the people around you the decisions of yourself that have led up to making the decision as it exists right now would mean that under all of those circumstances, free will would be impossible. So that, that's a major question in the problem of free will. And again, check Symposium 45. So the question is whether we are causally necessitated to make choices and to act in particular ways. Sometimes it is misdescribed as the problem of whether we are influenced by our environment. But I think that's a complete misrepresentation of the issue. There is no sophisticated libertarian, metaphysical libertarian, that's how uh, supporters of free will in metaphysics are called. There's no sophisticated libertarian that would say that we're not influenced by our environment. The question though would be, whether such influence takes the form of causal necessitation. So for instance, there's a, there is the issue of pointing to people with the same upbringing who turned up completely differently. Mm. So you say that if this happened, then that kind of upbringing influences them, but does not necessitate them. Well, there's the other question. That's the nurture side of the debate. Let's go to nature. Are there diff differences in nature? There will be some, but are they sufficient in order to explain different 
how people behave differently and how for instance you could say different people behave differently in the in in the same conditions so that's the the problem of free will and the idea is that if our will is free then we have the ability to do otherwise then let's say for instance you had you were contemplating you were torn by a moral dilemma happens often yes so according to someone who believes in free will you had the the ability to choose either option maybe it wasn't as likely as each option isn't as likely as the other one but there is a possibility of you doing that so from the standpoint of free will you could say that everything else being the same you could choose otherwise from the standpoint of nature though kant would say that you can't do you, this doesn't make sense that is why he is also interested in saying that the standpoint of nature is constructed by the mind so the necessity that we see in nature is a necessity that the mind provides to the the, the objects of experience that is why for instance he disagrees with traditional metaphysicians who are saying that the necessity that we are viewing in nature is inherent in nature kant would say that you cannot do you cannot say this this leads you into traditional metaphysics which leads by itself to irreconcilable disagreements you can never agree the only way to to work your way around it is to say that nature is essentially something that is constructed by the mind and by constructed by the mind it doesn't mean pure subjectivism that something takes place because i want it to take place because he, he wouldn't say for instance that someone who just says well i'm i'm gonna say i'm a helicopter or something he wouldn't say that it's true because they construct it because he says that this is not something that is under is not optional our mind is such that it views things in time, space, and standing in causal relations. And that's it, basically. All right. That's all very interesting. And it seems like the sort of thing that you could go around in circles on on the question of, is it nature or is it a development of our mind that we put necessity and causal necessity on these things? Um, I, I, would, you know, I, I would add the point that the mind is a product of nature in the first place, being that human beings are um part of the ecosystem to a certain degree obviously we operate slightly differently from other animals but uh we do have a nature to us um but i think that would be diverging a bit too much from the subjects we'll end with this because at the end i have some slides about the antinomy of free will mm. so another Excellent. issue he's talking about autonomous will so kant is very much focused on autonomy and autonomy literally means self-law that is why he uses an idiosyncratic language when he's talking about the will as being a law to itself, which is a horrible way of saying some things that we're going to explain in a bit. Is this a construction of his original wording, or is it because of the translation from German into English? Um, no, I think it is. I think it is the original one, because the term autonomy is uh, it's a, basically a Greek word. All oh, right. Yeah. Damn it, Kant. <laughs>
Why can't these people write like human beings? <laughs> yeah, and then we have heteronomous will, which is the will that is driven by motives other than the motive of duty. Do you remember that we talked about the syllogisms, the practical syllogisms? So he would say something like, in order for these syllogisms to be valid and for morality to be sustainable, we need to have, we need to be committed to the idea that there are some things that are categorically right to do and, con and categorically wrong not to do. Sorry, and categori categorically wrong to do. Mm. It's just that. It's morally right to do this, morally wrong to do this. So, let's talk a bit about the goodwill, which is the cornerstone of his philosophy. Okay, so he is saying that as human beings, we engage in several actions, but not all actions have moral worth. Do you think that's a, that's a good idea? What do you think? That not all actions have moral worth. Yeah. Um, to a certain degree, I can agree with that. I mean, what's the moral... What's the moral content of a decision whether I decide to put sugar in my coffee or not, for instance? I think there are some actions that can be separated from that but then obviously you could add contingencies of oh well what if it's the last spoon full of sugar and somebody yeah. else really wants that sugar and you agreed to give it? there's all sorts of things that you can add on top of that but yes i do believe that there are some actions that are primarily habitual that don't come about because of any deliberation or thought that people do purely because they do them because it's a habit of theirs and there doesn't need to be any positive or negative come off the back of that. I think you're describing really well the idea of morally indifferent choices. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you. Now, when it comes to moral worth, there's a distinction that he's talking about, which has to do with doing the right thing and doing the right thing for the right reasons. Because he says, for instance, a lot of people are doing the right thing, but not for the right reasons. For instance, they may think that they may want to do the wrong thing, but they're afraid that they're not going to get away with it. Mm. The fear of the consequences for the lives. So he would say that they do the right thing, but they're not morally worthy. So they do the right thing, but they don't do it because they enjoy doing the right thing. They do it. Once again, out of a fear of some kind of judgment, either from God or greater society or some punishment being thrust upon them. Yes, and for him, it's not an issue of enjoyment so much. And he thinks that precisely when people start talking about enjoyment, they're talking about something like happiness. And he thinks also that this is leading us astray. And he has this idea that I don't know if you will agree with, but he says that there's a distinction between someone being happy and someone deserving to be happy. He thinks that there are some people who should, don't deserve being happy. Well, They don't deserve happiness. Uh, that's an incredibly morally judgmental perspective that I can 100% agree with. Okay, so you start, <laughs> you start being more partial to Kant. You start liking some of the stuff he says. Well, I, I'm under no illusions that he was probably not somebody who... I mean, it, he seems to be somebody who had strong convictions, who I imagine had a strong sense of morality. Yeah. Or else, why would you go to all of this effort if you didn't? So I imagine that he was quite harshly judgmental of some people. Yeah. So he would say something like, 
to deserve to be happy, you need to act for duty's sake, which means that you need to have a good will. So if you're doing the right thing just because you are you 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 think you're gonna get away, you're not gonna get away with doing the wrong thing that you really want, then you're basically conforming to duty, but you're not doing it in the right way. You're not a moral person. You may be doing the right thing, but you're not a moral person. So to be a moral person, you need to have a good will. And your action must be the outcome of a good will. So you need in common language, you need to do the right thing for the right reasons, for the right motive. I understand where he's coming from with that. What is his solution to this? Because I see this could easily snowball into some kind of uh, social engineering mindset. Because if you believe that people... I don't know that this is what Kant did say, or did believe, but I can easily see this being extrapolated from the statements that you just made. If you believe that people, if you want to add a moral ought to it, ought to do the right thing for the right reason, and most people only do the right thing for the wrong reason because of societal constraints, I see that as a easily a mindset that can snowball into the social engineering where you say, okay, well, we need to make sure that people are only doing the right thing for the right reasons, so we need to instill in them a mindset that I believe is the right mindset for them to do good things for the good reasons. So, I, I think that's a complex question. I cannot give you a very good answer, mm. but I think that to an extent, you're right, and this can snowball. But I think that this is a far more prevalent feature of all thinking and all moral theories than is recognized to be. Most moral theories, I think all moral theories basically are prone to being used for things like that. But there are two things to say in Kant's defense to show how, for instance, his position could be a bit more vulnerable, no, a bit less vulnerable than others. So he would say, for instance, things like the following, that he is literally talking to individual people who think about morality. You can never know if someone, you can never fully establish if someone actually did the right thing for the right reasons or because they were afraid. They had any kind of inclination to do something else, but you know they were afraid of not getting away with doing the wrong thing. You cannot ever establish that because he also says that in the same person, both inclinations can be present. So for instance, when you are contemplating doing the right thing, the motive of duty could be present as much as the fear that you won't get away with doing something wrong. So at the end of the day, he would say that you, you cannot establish it 100% from an external standpoint. It is something to be told like advice for individual people to act in their own lives. That's one thing he could say to defend his position. And the second thing, which we will touch, has to do with treating humanity as an end in itself and the idea of the kingdom of ends that is really important. And essentially it means, it, it is a fancy way again, of him saying you shouldn't treat 
people like objects. It's dehumanizing. Mm. And he says merely as objects, because in a way, as he will say, is that in a way you cannot avoid treating people in an instrumental way, but you have to treat them also as beings who do have ends of themselves, um, purposes in lives, and that is why they have dignity and why they deserve respect. So he says, for instance, if we strike an economic deal, we are, in a way, using each other as a means to promote our economic ends, but that isn't necessarily something that is disrespecting each other. Something like that. So the idea of subverting this point to have, for instance, a government that would come and say, well, these people are not worthy of being happy, therefore I'm going to deprive them all means of happiness and of all their rights and I'm going to demonize them. I think he would say that this is inconsistent with the idea that human beings are ends in themselves and that they deserve a kind of dignity. I think this is how he would say. But when it comes to conceptual subversion, there are all sorts of ways in which uh, you know you can twist language and get really weird results. And that is why at the end of the day, I think the most important thing is a kind of self-honesty and sincerity where we really listen to advice and actually try to see whether it maps into the world and whether it actually makes sense for us rather than just staying on the abstract issue of you know concepts and how they change mm. does this make sense I follow what you're saying. It seems that once you get past the initial premise, there does seem to be a number of contingencies that have to be added for it to be able to work in any practical yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, because as you mentioned there, there's one thing to apply everything in the abstract and to rationalize everything using pure logic and deduction, but there comes a point where you have to translate this into real world actions. Yeah. And I think I understand that he's being careful to try and shore up some of the premises of the Enlightenment and these syllogisms and such, uh, uh, but it does seem that there is room for subversion, but there's room for subversion in basically every system yeah. of thought. So, excuse me. Um, so I, th I think I think we should carry on. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to the goodwill. We have H.J. Patton, who was one of the foremost scholars of Kant in the 20th century, and he's explaining the notion of a goodwill. And he says, for Kant, the only thing that is good without qualification or restriction is a goodwill. That is to say, a goodwill alone is good in all circumstances. And in that sense, is an absolute or unconditioned good. We may also describe it as the only thing that is good in itself, good independently of its relation to other things. So this is interesting because it is like him trying to say that it is part of the supreme dimension of morality. There, is, there are no circumstances in which the, the presence of the will to do the right thing for duty's sake is a bad thing. I can see why this has been labelled as a form of transcendental idealism, because this is a very transcendental concept. What it makes it sound like is that the goodwill is a metaphysical substance that you're almost drawing from, 
when you behave in a way that is within the goodwill. The goodwill is its own being that you, once again, that you, that you draw from in some sense. You're correct. And for him, transcendental here means independent of experience. And he does say that experience alone cannot give us any, let's say, moral principle. Why? Because experience is facing the problem of deduction that Hume mentioned. You cannot derive and establish universal, universally valid propositions from finite observations, number one. And number two, you cannot bridge the gap between an ought and an is. So if you have all you have is experience of the world about human motivation, you're doing practical anthropology that he said in the we talked about in the beginning. See, to to clarify my point, what this sounds almost like to me, have you ever heard of transcendental meditation? Yep. Yeah. So as far as my understanding of that goes, they believe that there is something called the unified field, which is at the base level of all existence and creation that through meditation you can connect to, which will help you to guide your way through your life. This seems to be somewhat adjacent to that, once again. So this is where Kant is pissing off many people. He is using several words in ways that are not very conventional. So for instance, in, in his epistemology, he is changing the meaning of words. For instance, intuition in Kant is different than what it was before. And he's talking about, you know... Is his definition closer or further away from the typical layman's use of the word intuition? It wasn't, it wasn't ever a, a layman concept, but he... On the way that we use it now, I should say. No, no, it's, it's different, but oh, both right. of them are different. But to your point about transcendental meditation, there's a distinction between a metaphysical and an epistemological way of approaching the concept. What you're talking about, the transcendental, is something that seems to me to be transcending the world of our everyday experience. In Kant, it means something that it cannot be grounded in experience. And by implication, there is a kind of link, but he is having trouble to account for it and actually say that this is the case, that the transcendental exists in the metaphysical sense, because he's skeptical of metaphysics. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.